episode 162 of Board Game Blitz, a podcast about all things board games that you can listen to in less time than it takes overly polite players to decide who is going to be first player in a game. Board Game Blitz is sponsored by Gray Fox Games. This week, we're talking about board game etiquette. First, we discuss a couple games we've played recently, the One Ring RPG and Paint the Roses. Then, we talk about ways you can be a more courteous and polite table mate when playing board games. Finally, we wrap things up with a look at the etymology of the word etiquette. And now, here are your hosts, Andy and Crystal. Before we get into the main episode, I have a couple guests here to make an announcement. Board Game Day is on Kickstarter. Yeah, Board Game Day is on Kickstarter. So people can buy their own copy of Board Game Day, right? What is Board Game Day? A book. It's a book. About what? About board games. <laughs> yeah, do you like it? Yeah. Alright, what do you like about this book? Panda. Yeah, the panda. Oh what other animals are there? Yay! And they all play board games together. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay, for the record, I'm pretty sure your boys need to be in every Kickstarter preview video. For every Kickstarter. Like, you monetize those babies. You could make so much. Like, every Kickstarter would fund instantly. Like, it's just that cute. I am so excited. And I'm excited at how well Board Game Day is doing on Kickstarter, Ambi. Yeah, I'm excited too. I wasn't expecting it to do so well. <laughs> well, you wrote an awesome book and Rachel did some amazing illustrations and people obviously love it. So yeah, mm-hmm. if you all have not checked out the Kickstarter for Board Game Day yet, what are you doing? I know <laughs> everybody knows babies. I'm Even if you don't have babies, like I don't have babies, you know babies and you know people that are gonna have babies. So you should go get uh, get your copy of Board Game Day. Come on, how perfect would it be if one of your friends announces that they're expecting and you have this book on hand to gift to them already. They love board games. They're having a baby. Boom. Gift. Done. It's easy. <laughs> just back. Get your copy now. Get a couple extra copies just in case. And then, yeah, you'll be all ready to go. And you won't have to go shopping for baby gifts. And that's great for everybody. Win-win. A while ago, I got a review copy of the One Ring RPG which is a role-playing game, not a board game. But I got this from Free League Publishing. And the One Ring RPG is a role-playing game set in Middle-earth from the Lord of the Rings theme. As some of you might know, I like Lord of the Rings theme. So if I'm going to play an RPG like Lord of the Rings, that that, that gets me excited about it. So I, I had actually seen like an older version of the One Ring RPG. This, what I just got, is the One Ring RPG 2nd Edition, which came out in 2021. I had seen like an older version at our game store in like the used section and I was like oh maybe I could get this and then I never did so I was really excited to try this out because the second edition comes with a starter set I'm not like super familiar with a lot of RPGs I played Dungeons and Dragons when I was little I didn't like know all of the rules back then so I didn't actually do much for it and then I played it like in college too and then I've played like one or two RPGs since then, but not like a a long campaign or anything. So it's kind of daunting to get into a big RPG for me. 
but the one ring has a starter set and then it has like the main the one ring rpg and i got both of them but i haven't actually read through the main one so the main rpg is like this really big book with a bunch of rules in it it takes place uh, between the hobbit and the lord of the rings and you can be like a ranger or a dwarf or an elf or a hobbit and adventuring and going out and doing adventures in middle earth but the starter set you are just in the shire which is where the hobbits live and, and you're like a hobbit and you're doing like little advent mini adventures in the shire so if you're familiar with lord of the rings lore the shire is kind of like not much exciting or dangerous happens there <laughs> so then your adventures instead of like going and attacking things or there's not gonna be like dragons or anything in the shire it's it's like you're gonna go steal something from your neighbor or like go see why your neighbor's crops are getting lost or something like <laughs> some some that's your adventure <laughs> so it's like it's like an intro so basically it's like it's like lord of the rings neighborhood watch edition <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, so the starter set has like intro scenarios too. So it's a good starter set for people who are new to RPGs, I think. So I read through everything. It comes with a rule book, a map, I think five pre-made adventures in a whole campaign, a reference book about the Shire, which talks about like the different locations in the Shire. It comes with dice, some cards that like give you your combat stances and items. So instead of like just usually, I guess you would look up in your in the book for which items you have and reference that, but like they give you cards for easy reference and then also pre-made character sheets. So usually when you start a role-playing game, you make your own character. You have to like read all the rules, make a character. And then the, the dungeon master, which who's the person who's like telling the story and facilitating, will have to make adventures for it. And then they start the game. <laughs> but in the starter set, there's pre-made adventures. So it tells you the story of what's going to happen and then like what they can do and how they proceed through the adventure. And so it's good for a new to dungeon master person like me because I've never DM'd anything and I was very nervous about that and I still am. So I, I actually only played it once so far with Toby. They say it can play like two to six players or something. I'm not sure the upper player count, but it said it can play two players, like one person as the dungeon master and one person as the adventurer. So we tried it at two players, but I think with the adventures that it comes with, I wouldn't recommend it at two players because there's only one person one character and then it seems like the adventures are made for more characters because they have things where it's like you have to be good at something to do it and then you want like a balance of things that people are good at as in with other role-playing games you have different skills and then to proceed with difficult things you use a skill and if you have like if you have aptitude in the skill then you can roll like more dice you add up the numbers of your dice and if it hits a certain number then you succeed so if you have to have like one certain skill to succeed at something and, and then like the one character doesn't have it usually like if there's more people then the other people can help but with one I character imagine you could play it <laughs> probably though with two people with the the player character controlling like multiple yeah. characters right yeah i guess but i don't know if, if that like takes away from the role-playingness because in a role-playing game you're supposed to like be role-playing as your character right so if you're multiple I mean, so characters. then you'd basically be talking to yourself, <laughs> yeah. like debating, what should we do next? Oh, I don't know. What should we do? Like, yeah, mm -hmm. I guess that does kind of like maybe one person is the talker and the decider of the group and yeah. the other person is a support character that just has some skills. <laughs> yeah. Or like probably if I were a more skillful dungeon master, I could like come up with something because 
the adventures are probably just like guides, right? You don't have to follow yeah, up yeah, on yeah. the book. And I'm not that good at that. <laughs> so I, I realized that I'm not, it's too stressful for me being a dungeon master. <laughs> so like this was my first time being a dungeon master. And I think it was a good intro. Like it does walk you through how to do it and stuff. But I'm just, I think I'm just not the type of person who, who is good at dungeon mastering. It's something that you want to be like more flexible with, I think, and like good at improv type. It was it was kind of stressful for me. <laughs> I've never been a DM. I've I've played in a number of different RPGs, mm-hmm. uh, different systems, different things. I've never DM'd anything. I've always kind of been a under the b- belief that I would be really good at it if I ever mm-hmm. like. Yeah, but the probably. thing is, I I don't have the time to <laughs> yeah, do it yeah. the way that I would want to do it. Like mm-hmm. honestly, like I know that there are people that exist that DM as a full time job, like for other people. Wow. And I feel like that is something that I would be really 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 good at but like I don't have the time to learn how to DM to even find out if like Mm -hmm. that is something that I could do full-time but I love coming up with stories and being creative and Mm -hmm. I I think it would be really fun although I would definitely be one of those DMs who would like create an entire you know like level of a dungeon (laughs) that the adventurers would blow right past guaranteed and I'd be real sad (laughs) when they just like oh we're good we're we're done here and I'm like oh like that that would definitely happen to me and I, I don't know what to do if people like go in the opposite direction of what you want them to do. Right? No, like I think, it, you know, improv is a big part of being mm-hmm. a good DM. And that's why I think some of the more popular RPG shows often involve comedians, improv mm-hmm. actors and things like that. And, and just actors in general, because they're used to A, responding off of cues from another person and B, coming up with things really quickly and so I think they lend themselves to role-playing quite a bit yeah and I also had like the problem of time (laughs) like I didn't have time to do especially like making up adventures and stuff so that's why the starter set appealed to me because it has pre-made adventures so like it has the text of like what the setup of the adventure and then it's like they have this task that they have to complete and then it's like they could try this or they could try this or something like this and like eventually they'll figure out something to complete it and then this happens and so it kind of like guides you through the story and then it gives you some text that you can just read or paraphrase as the story like flavor text that you're telling the adventurers so you can just read it or you can like elaborate more if you're more of the storyteller type i just ended up reading it <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that's a good introduction. It didn't get like super exciting. In I, I read through all of the scenarios and it does get more exciting in the later ones. There's like combat and stuff. But since it's a starter set to the One Ring, it doesn't have like all of the rules, all of the combat rules and stuff. It's like a simple version. We're not going to play it again at two players because Toby did not want to do it again at two players. He wants to play with more players, but I don't know when that's going to happen. So I wanted to talk about it because I don't know like when we'll be able to play it again. But I, I do know that they have a solo mode out. So it's called the Strider set. And that's like another book, but you need to know the full rules for that. And then you can play a solo. I'm not sure exactly how it works, but I have the PDF for the solo version. And I haven't read through the full rules of the main RPG yet, but I was thinking maybe I could go through the solo version, maybe like on stream or something once I read read the rules. That might be cool. So that's the One Ring RPG and the One Ring starter set. 
Back at PAX Unplugged in 2019, I stopped by the North Star Games booth and I got a sneak peek at one of their upcoming games that has now released officially, and that is the cooperative deduction game Paint the Roses. I got to demo this at PAX Unplugged that year, and then I got to play it in full at Dice Tower West this year, and then I played it two more times this past weekend (laughs) with my friend who brought his copy over to my house. So I've played it a few times now. Paint the Roses is an Alice in Wonderland themed cooperative game where you are collectively a gardener trying to tend the garden before the queen catches up with you and chops your head off as she is wont to do. The way that you tend the garden is through whims. The queen has certain whims about what she wants in her garden and all of the players each have a single whim card that they have drawn from one of three decks. And the decks are rated based on difficulty and how hard they are to guess. There's easy whims, which just relate to the colors on tiles. There's medium whims, which can either be color to color or shape to shape. And then there are difficult ones that can be color to color, shape to shape, or color to shape. All of the shapes are like the suits in a deck of cards. So there's four shapes. And then there are, I believe, four colors as well. And so obviously, if you have an easy card, everybody knows you're doing color. The way you give clues to your teammates is when it is your turn, you take one of the available tiles from the greenhouse, and there's always four available, place it on the board, and then you put cubes onto the tile that you just placed, indicating how many times the whim in your hand that is hidden is met by that tile being placed there. So for instance, if the whim in your hand was an easy one and it said red to red, and you took a red tile from the greenhouse and placed it down on the board, and it was surrounded by four tiles, two of which had red on them, then you would put two cubes on the tile you just placed to indicate that red to red happens twice, basically. Now, the other players don't know it's red to red, but since you have an easy card, if there isn't another color that appears twice, it will get, it's easy, pretty easy to figure out in that situation what color you have. But obviously, as you move up in the higher difficulty cards, where there's different shapes or colors, or it can be color to shape, then often it's like, oh wait, there's two hearts and two reds. Oh wait, and then there's two pinks also. So, or whatever. After every player's turn, you have to make a guess of some sort. And if you're correct, you move forward the number of spaces on the card. And then the queen also moves every turn, even if you get things right. If you get things wrong, she doubles her movement speed for that turn. And she will catch up to you very quickly if you are not careful. And as you progress throughout the game, you're just trying to fill up the board with the tiles, with the, uh, the flowers and shapes on them. And then once you fill the board, you win. Or if the queen catches up with you along the outside of the board on the track, you lose and she chops your head off. Now that I've played this game a few times, it's interesting. I would say this is not actually one of my favorite cooperative or deduction games, but that's not, I don't dislike it. So the game comes with these notepads that are incredibly helpful in sussing out what a player might have. Because the thing that I haven't mentioned yet is when a player puts a tile out, they're trying to give you information about their whim. But all of the other players also put cubes out on that tile if any of their whims have been met. So you're getting information potentially about all of the players' 
whims on any given player's turn. And what's interesting about that is even if they don't put any cubes out, that's still information about the card in their hand because it eliminates a number of possibilities. If they can't place a cube out, you know that the whim is not met by what just got placed. So you're getting information about everybody every turn, but it gets confusing pretty quickly, especially as new tiles get placed out and you're looking at the old tiles that have been placed and you're like, okay, wait, that one wasn't there when this tile got placed. So now, you know, you're trying to kind of figure out what's possible and your brain breaks a little bit and the sheets that it comes with are really helpful for note taking. But when we started using the sheets, the game instantly became less fun to play for me personally. It was easier, but it honestly felt like work at that point. I was having fun with my friends, but I literally was kind of sitting there like head in my hand, just like being like, okay, you guys can take notes if you want. I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> it was, it felt like work. And so that was interesting to me because I do like deduction games and I enjoy deduction games where you take notes sometimes. But in this one, I think the fun and the joy of this game for me shone through better when I wasn't doing as well at it, which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, I guess. But I, I don't know. It just, when we were just thinking about things and not taking notes, it was more fun for me. My friends didn't mind the note taking, I think as much as I did, but it's something interesting to note. It's still a fun game. It does seem that it is kind of like the right level of difficulty. Cooperative games, generally you want to be pretty difficult, you know, possible to win. And we did get really close the first time we played and then we ended up winning. Did we win the second time or did we lose again? Now I don't remember. Regardless, it felt like the difficulty was dialed in pretty well. But you do have to start taking harder whims pretty early in the game to do well. So Paint the Roses from North Star Games, designed by Ben Goldman. This one is a lot of fun. I would definitely recommend it if you like either cooperative or deduction games. But, you know, just your mileage may vary with the note-taking implements that they give you if you are like me. Wait, so originally did it not have the note sheets? I don't know is the answer to oh, that. Okay. So when I demoed it, it was literally still in like prototype form, I think, kind oh. of. And then when I played it with the brothers Murph at Dice Tower West, nobody brought out note sheets. So I'm assuming, huh, okay. and I know they had a prototype copy as well. They had a pre-release copy. So if they had notepads, they didn't get them out. I didn't even know they existed until this weekend. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I've, yeah. I've played it once and I found the deduction part pretty boring but yeah we played it with the note sheets and it said in the instructions like oh we recommend that you like take notes for the person to your left or something and like so it's just like you're just doing deduction on your own for one person and it wasn't very cooperative feeling in the deduction part and I did not like I found the deduction very boring so <laughs> yeah there, I, this one I it's was not bad but it didn't it did not strike me as much as I thought it would honestly I thought I would like it more than I did yeah, I, I was disappointed. <laughs> so, uh. <laughs> All right. So that was Paint the Roses. Ambie and I were recently tagged in a video from our friends Rolling With Two, Sarah and Will. They were hopping onto a trend that was started by the board game garden, Jenna, who started this tabletop tag trend where you answer 20 questions and the last question is tagging other people. So it's modern day chain letter stuff, but fun because you actually like talking about board games. So <laughs> we just recorded and posted a video of us doing the tabletop tag trend on our YouTube channel. 
Have you subscribed to us on YouTube? You should definitely go subscribe to us on YouTube. Ambie's been making a lot of videos lately, and who knows, maybe someday I will make more videos. It's entirely possible. No one knows. But in that video, one of the questions was talking about board game pet peeves. And I feel like this is a topic that gets discussed with some regularity in social media and other content spaces. But I wanted to flip it on its head for this episode. And we want to talk about the good things you can do, like board game etiquette, like thumbs up stuff, good things that you can do. And inevitably, some of these will just be the reverse of bad behavior. <laughs> but I think we also have some good suggestions for things that maybe not everybody thinks about when they're going to be playing board games with friends. And so maybe we can give you some helpful hints on how to be the best board gamer you can be. The first thing I thought of was like helping with setup and cleanup. Yes. Instead of just sitting there. <laughs> right. A lot of times people complain about like a long setup of a game, but if everyone's helping set up, it's actually pretty quick. Even with long games, like we've set up 18xx games back when we used to play them more, but like everyone would help set up and then it would get done pretty quickly and you can chat while you're setting up too. So setup doesn't really matter like <laughs> that much. Right. Like, I, I never really noticed the length of setup because we're just all helping and chatting. Same with cleanup. Yeah, when I am setting up a game of mine, I have gotten better about delegating tasks. Mm -hmm. So especially if there are like, let's say multiple decks of cards that need to be shuffled, I will hand one to one player and say, you shuffle this. I will hand yeah. one to another player, say, you shuffle that. But I will say when it comes to putting a game away, I know at least some of my friends are a little more particular about how they want things organized. And so it is, if you, A, you should offer to help put away a game. Mm -hmm. And if they say yes, you should be cognizant of the ways in which they like to store oh. their games. Ask, you know, which baggies yeah. that you should use for which components and how to put things back in the box, things like that. Mm -hmm. Just so, because I will admit, I have, there have been times when I've seen people like be like, yeah, help. And then the person walks away and they're like, they're like fixing it. They're basically like redoing <laughs> the, the cleanup because they didn't want to be rude, which is, you know, that's fine. Toby is very blunt. So he, he will just say like, oh, this goes, like he'll tell someone if they're doing it wrong. <laughs> I mean, as long as you're not so, rude, good. like blunt yeah. is not necessarily yeah. rude. Yeah. Something that I said actually reminded me of another thing. And that is if you are playing with someone else's copy of a game, like a, a personal copy of a game, always ask how they prefer to have the cards shuffled. Because mm -hmm. a lot of players don't like riffle shuffling because it can potentially bend the cards, especially if the cards are lower quality. And mm -hmm. I know players who care about that kind of stuff often sleeve their cards or things like that. But I think it's still good etiquette to just ask, you know, do you mind riffle shuffling or would you prefer something else? And like, you can always pile shuffle or other things if you're not comfortable mm -hmm. doing the... I don't remember what the one where you like slide the sides into overhand? each other. I don't know. What yeah, that overhand <laughs> shuffling maybe is what that's called. I should probably know since I used to deal blackjack. Uh, but I just had a machine that shuffled all six decks for me. And if I oh. that machine was broken, well, the players had to wait a little while because hand shuffling <laughs> six decks, it's a process, y'all. Yeah. But yeah, so I would say ask before shuffling and make sure that your shuffle style is okay with the person who owns the game. Another thing that's nice is, is bringing food. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Especially if you're not the host of the yeah, event. Yeah. If you're like going over to someone's house. But I guess this is like just in general. Not just I mean, that is good. Games. Yeah, that's good <laughs> etiquette in general. But I mean, for a board game day, 
Yeah. Obviously, like, don't bring a bag of Cheetos, probably. <laughs> Whereas at a normal, like, hangout, Cheetos would be a great snack to bring. Yeah. <laughs> and if the host is ordering food for you, you know, offer mm. to chip in for that. I like to actually provide the food, like, pay for the food when I have people come to my house, especially if friends are driving from, like, farther parts of town. Because then I'm like, no, like, you, it does me a favor when you all come to my house because then I can, don't have to worry about the dogs and mm-hmm. I'm comfortable and everything else. So I'm like, no, I can afford it. I will pay for the food. But it is always nice when people offer. I guess also, like, bringing games. We're going to a board game meetup. A lot of people often bring games. And then if you're bringing, like, a new game, I think it's good to know the rules before. If it's, like, a heavier game. I guess like a like a one page rule of game you can just like open and learn there but a game that's more involved it's probably better to know the rules and be able to teach it like before bringing it. Absolutely. And also be aware that like you won't necessarily get to play the games you play so like be okay playing other people's games, right? Absolutely. No, I think that's a good point and to that end if you're the host of a board game meetup that involves multiple people who have all brought games. I will say I will generally try to make sure that everybody who brought a game gets one of their games played. Obviously, that's not always going to happen depending on time, the size of the group, all of that. But generally, I at least try and make sure that people who brought a thing that they're excited about get a chance to play it if possible. Yeah, that's been hard for us because usually we only have time for like one big game because <laughs> we only play like Tuesday nights. So yeah, if if multiple people bring a game, then it's like, oh, okay, we can play one. <laughs> Rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> and then as far as during a game is concerned, I would say it's good etiquette to try to plan your turn in advance when possible. Mm-hmm. Obviously, as game state changes, things change. And sometimes, you know, the player that's right before you will do something that will throw off everything you wanted to do but I would say at least being cognizant of what's going on keeping somewhat of a level of focus on the game especially Mm -hmm. if it is a heavier or more serious game and planning out your next turn to whatever degree you can is good Mm -hmm. because then that will help you avoid analysis paralysis and potentially Mm -hmm. taking a really long time on your turn yeah I would say that you also if you are playing in a game and you were not the one who taught the game You should generally avoid offering strategic advice unless someone asks for it. Unsolicited Mm -hmm. advice can be really frustrating for some people, myself included, especially if it's like the beginning of my turn and I haven't even had time to think yet. And somebody's Mm -hmm. like, oh, you should just go there. Even if you're the person who taught the game, I don't think. Well, I would I would say sometimes when I teach games, I will give a statement up front that asks everybody. I'll say, you know, do you all want me to provide that kind of helpful guidance Mm -hmm. along the way? And some people are fine with that. So in rather than telling somebody you should do this on your turn, for me, the type of advice I would provide if I brought the game and taught the game would be. Hey, as a heads up, everybody, after this round, X thing is going to happen. So you might Mm want to plan for that, that kind of stuff. So less more specific and directed and more general advice that helps everybody. Or like if someone wants more advice on their turn, you can give them like options like, oh, you could go here or here or here. 
And this is what this place does. This is what this does. Like reminding what the things do. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, shoot, even me, when I'm familiar with games, occasionally <laughs> my brain will just kind of lock up, right? Uh-huh. Like I won't be able to decide. And so I will ask. I'll be like, y'all, I'm like, what's my options here? What can I do? You know, and I'll uh-huh. get some advice from my friends. But again, that's solicited advice. That's different. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I have learned as a hobby gamer, and I think I've gotten better at over the years, is as part of being a good or gracious loser, I love to compliment winning players on their strategy. Instead of focusing on the fact that they won or that they beat you, I like to focus on the good, which is what they did to get there. So rather than focusing on my loss, I will compliment them on their win. And I will say, wow, you had so much wheat at the end of the game. That's amazing, you know, or whatever. I'm making this up, obviously. But I think that helps kind of take away the sour taste that can be in your mouth after a loss, especially for me, if I get last place, it really bums me out especially if I'm like way behind. And also the other thing that bums me out is if I'm second, but just barely. Oh gosh, that one hurts sometimes. Yeah, that's good advice. I should I should do that. Because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times I focus on like, oh, I messed up here. And like, if I did this, then, then I would have gotten better. And I think so. a lot of people are like that. It's mm-hmm. easy to fixate on what you theoretically did wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Because you know that. But for me, it's like, oh, but look at what they did that's right or that's good. Mm-hmm. Maybe next time I'll try the wheat strategy. Yeah. And then it's just focusing on other people in the game too, instead of just your own. Yeah, that, that's nice. Yeah. So obviously those are just a few basic helpful tips, but we would love to hear from you all if you have any other advice for good, polite board game etiquette that you practice when you play board games with friends or family or that you would suggest to others. So hit us up on social media or in our Board Game Geek Guild and let us know. For this week's etymology segment, I'm going to dive into the history of the word etiquette. The word etiquette, the noun, originated in 1750 and came from a French word of the same spelling, which meant prescribed behavior. That word came from the old French estiquette. I'm probably butchering that, which meant label or ticket. So interestingly enough, the English word ticket actually also comes from the same root old French word that etiquette does, which I definitely did not know. Obviously, the word doesn't just mean prescribed behavior. It often is used to reference polite behavior. The sense development in French perhaps came from the small cards that were written or printed with instructions for how to behave properly at court. So that's why like small pieces of paper, tickets, and Mm. etiquette come from the same place because they were prescribed behavior. Once again, like this is how you need to behave. So I thought that was really interesting and it was a good reason to bring back the etymology segment. (laughs) Nice. And you gotta make sure you have good etiquette when you play Ticket to Ride. Absolutely. (laughs) And that's it for this week's Board Game Blitz. Visit our website, boardgameblitz.com for video and blog content, as well as to get links to all our social media pages. This episode was sponsored by Gray Fox Games. Profits of Doom will hit crowdfunding later this year. Stay tuned for more info about this two to six player card drafting and engine building game about surviving the apocalypse. And don't forget, Blitzketeers get 20% off non-exclusive items at grayfoxgames.com by using the code GFGBLITZ2022 at checkout. Join the Blitzketeer community on Discord by following the link in the show notes. You can support the show by leaving us a rating and review on your podcast provider. And if you want behind the scenes access and invite to our private Slack channel, visit patreon.com slash boardgameblitz. 
theme song was composed by Andrew Morrow. Technical support provided by Toby Mount. Until next time. We play the game and we finish it, then put it back up. Bye, everyone. Bye. Good at dungeon masting. Masting? Dungeon. Mastering. (laughs) Yeah. Who is good at dungeon mastering? In less time than it takes to. Oh, oh gosh. I'm just going to start over. Oh, there's no two. In there. there is I'm no like, two. <laughs> yeah, I deleted the two, but my brain was like, that's usually oh, there. Okay, the two's over there, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs>